0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is journalist and New York Times bestselling author David Gran, whose nonfiction books include The Lost City of Z, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, and most recently, Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI. Killers of the Flower Moon was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best True Crime Book. Killers of the Flower Moon investigates a series of systematic murders of members of the Osage Indian Nation in Oklahoma and focuses on the narrative of one Osage woman, Molly Burkhart, and uses her life to explore the killing of her family members and fellow Osage members. In the 1920s, the Osage were the wealthiest people per capita in the world due to oil reserves they had rights to that were discovered beneath their land. We began the interview with Grand discussing how he first heard of the killings and why he was intrigued to learn more.
1: I first heard about uh, the the Osage murders when I was uh, speaking to an expert in FBI history, and he had mentioned them. He didn't know that much about them. And at that time, I did not know anything about the Osage Indians. I did not know that they were the wealthiest people per capita in the world in the early 20th century. I did not know that they were then serially murdered for their oil money and that the case became one of the FBI's first major homicide cases. And after learning that, I looked around to see if I could find, you know, any kind of detailed historical accounts about what happened, I couldn't find any. And I decided to make a trip out to the Osage territory. And at that time, I still, I had no plans to write a book, I thought maybe I might do an article, Um, I wasn't sure what I would find. And I made a trip out to the Osage Nation Museum. Uh, This was back in 2011. And when I was visiting the museum, I had seen this uh, enormous panoramic photograph on the wall that was taken in 1924, and that showed members of the Osage Nation with white settlers. And it looked very innocent, but I noticed that a portion of the photograph was missing, and I asked the museum director what had happened to it, and she said it contained a figure so frightening she had decided to remove it. And she then pointed to the missing panel, and she said the devil was standing right there. And, and she went down into the basement, and she got an image of the missing panel, and it showed one of the killers of the Osage peering out very creepily uh, from the corner of the photograph. And that really was the galvanizing moment. And the book really grew out of trying to understand who that figure was, um, and the anguishing history embodied. And in many ways, it was a project to address my own ignorance, because I knew nothing about this. And I kept thinking about that photograph because the Osage had removed it not to forget what had happened, but because they can't forget and yet so many people, including people like me, knew nothing about what had transpired.
0: Isn't that amazing that basically your book maybe hinged on that one question? And that one question was, what's missing in the photo? Like how many it, other people might have seen that and not asked?
1: Yes. And it really was just a, a kind of a, a moment of happenstance. And it's an, it's an extraordinary photo. It went across the a huge portion of the wall. And yeah, and I was just looking at it and it just, there's just, you could tell that a part had been cut out. Yeah. It's very rare that a story has a, uh, an origin story, <laughs> the story itself, but that really was the origin story.
0: I'm sure you find things every day that are interesting. So what elements do you look for in nonfiction that you know, it's worthy of exploring?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a, a, a kind of a, a rational process and an irrational process. Um, the rational process is you, you you hear about something that is intriguing that you don't know about. So clearly the Osage murders was something uh, I didn't know about. Um, you're looking for something, especially if it's a book or a longer feature, that has some deeper meaning or larger importance. So certainly the Osage murders just kind of on its very face has this great moral imperative. And then you're looking for a story that has kind of different dimensions. Um, you know, the story of the Osage Murders tells about an incredibly sinister crime, about a racial justice. It also opens up a world of law enforcement, uh, opens up a world of that the forces of the original contact between settlers and whites. In a way, this story is almost a microcosm for that entire history. And so you kind of have a singular narrative, which the themes echo the history of the settlement of this country. And then another element is you need to know if there are materials available to tell the story, because sometimes you come across stories uh, that you would like to tell, uh, but you can't find those materials of which to tell them. Uh, There's also just an irrational quality, which is you almost just instinctively feel a compulsion about a story. Um, It gets underneath your skin and you feel this need to tell it. And that irrational quality, which really kind of defies analysis in many ways, I mean, you can kind of rationally explain it, but it is in many ways essential because, you know, researching a story uh, takes a lot of energy and ardor and a lot of tedium, uh, a lot of dead ends. Um, uh, uh, The story of the killers of the flower moon took me close to five years to research and write. You need that compulsion if you're going to, Really investigate a story um, and do it well.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is David Graham, author of The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, The Lost City of Z, and most recently, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI. You mentioned that the Osage were the wealthiest people per capita in the world. But that it they didn't start off that way. They basically started off on a hundred million acres, I believe, in Kansas. well, it may be across state lines. And then they got reduced by the white men to fifty by one hundred and twenty five mile area in Kansas, and then eventually had to move to Oklahoma. So what was the state that they were in at that point, and how did they end up in Oklahoma? With the access to the, these this money,
1: Yeah, So the Osage had once, as you said, they had once controlled much of the central part of the country, um, an area that stretched all the way from Missouri and Kansas to the edge of the Rockies. Uh, but they were soon driven off their lands, and they were uh, forced to cede more than a hundred million acres of their ancestral land. And they were um, bunched up on this reservation in Kansas, and once more under siege from white settlers. And it was then that um, they were forced to, to, to move again and search for a new homeland. And it was then that this Osage chief stood up and he said, we should move to this area and what was then Indian territory would later become part of the state of Oklahoma. He said, because the land was rocky and infertile and hilly, and it was essentially uh, considered worthless by the white man. And he said, so our people will be happy there and finally left alone. And so they settled there uh, in this area. Uh, and then by then, the forced migrations, the disease, the massacres had taken a tremendous toll on the Osage. Their numbers had dwindled to just uh, a few thousand, a third of what their numbers had been less than a century earlier. And then, lo and behold, uh, the seemingly forsaken land turned out to be sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil uh, under in in the United States at the time.
0: They already were being persecuted and their lands taken away. And then they moved to this land and they had a very smart negotiator who who said, we're going to get what's on top and what's on bottom. And they didn't even really know at the time that there was oil. So what happened was every Osage got it was an allotment system and they got an allotment and a head right. And a head right basically meant that they got this residual the money from the oil. Everyone got one share, basically.
1: The government had forced upon the Osage the very kind of brutal culmination of its assimilation campaign, which they had imposed on many other American Indian nations, which was this allotment system, which broke up the communal ownership of the land, divvied it up into private parcels. Each members of a nation, Indian nation, would be, American Indian nation, would be given a parcel, then the rest would be opened up to settlers. Um, and this was done, not incidentally, to make it much easier to procure um, American Indian lands. Um, But the Osage had very shrewdly managed to hold on to this realm beneath their uh, territory. They had inserted into their treaty provision, uh, into their treaty uh, negotiations, a provision that said, we shall maintain all the subsurface mineral rights to our land. and. Uh, they didn't know they were sitting out on Pond of Fortune. They thought they were just, there was a little bit of oil. And so they, again, they very shrewdly managed to hold on to this last realm, a realm with their territory that they could not even see. And so after allotment, um, what happened to the Osage was typical of many American Indian nations that were allotted. The surface territory rapidly disappeared into the hands of the whites. But they maintained all this area underneath. And each Osage had been given this head right, which was a shear and a mineral trust. And a head right could not be bought or sold. It could only be inherited. Um, so the Osage had become the world's first underground reservation.
0: There are so many tragedies in this book. But the most astonishing part in this saga for me was that they had this wealth, but they couldn't control it. Can you yes, talk about that? Yes.
1: The way they acquired the wealth is that prospectors would pay for leases or royalties. And just to give some sense of the amount of wealth, in 1923, those 2,000 or so Osage who were on the tribal roll received what would be worth today more than $400 million. So this was enormous sums of money. And that wealth provoked um, a great deal of prejudice across the country. And uh, the U.S. Congress went so far as to pass legislation requiring many Osage to have white guardians to uh, manage their money. Um, This system was not Abstractly racist. It was literally racist. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a full-blooded Osage, you were deemed "quote unquote" incompetent and given one of these guardians. And so here you could be a great chief who led a nation, and um, yet you could have this guardian telling you whether you could buy this toothpaste at the corner store or buy this car. Uh, And the system wasn't only racist; it also ushered in one of the largest state and federally sanctioned criminal enterprises, uh, as many Osage as the guardians began to swindle hundreds of millions of dollars from the Osage.
0: We're just talking about simple and pure greed. And the Osage, because they had guardianships, I mean, sometimes they couldn't even, you know, there was a story in there of a woman who needed her kids to get medical attention, and she didn't have money. I mean, they they died so poor, and they had, you know, ostensibly in the bank, you know, millions to pay for more than enough doctors and yet these children died.
1: Here you were in the 1920s with um, the Osage with all this wealth or ostensible wealth um, and yet they did not have the rights of full-fledged citizens. I write a lot about one woman named uh, Molly Burkhart, whose family becomes a prime target of this conspiracy where one by one her relatives are being murdered off. I mean, she has a sister who's shot in the back of the head, her mother is slowly poisoned, she has another uh, sister who is blown up in her house. And um, you know, Molly is uh crusading for justice, um, trying to find out who the perpetrators are. Uh, because she was a woman and because she was Native American, um, her pleas were often ignored uh because of prejudice at the time. And Molly. Uh, husband is the one who controls her fortune. Um, And I found a document concerning Molly from 1931, which was just a few years before Molly died. And in it was a a plea for her appealing her, quote-unquote, incompetency so she could control her fortune. And only then did the court allow her to have access to her money, much of which had already been swindled. And so only in 1931 here in the United States did, did Molly Burkhart, Um, you know, nearing their death, uh, become an American citizen with the full-fledged rights.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is David Gran, author of The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, The Lost City of Z, and most recently, Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI. These people in this Osage nation were slowly being murdered. It wasn't always obvious that they were being murdered because some were slowly poisoned. So it seemed like maybe they died of sickness, but some were blatantly shot in the head. Some were, you know, bludgeoned on trains, but they were slowly being murdered and it was hard to sort of piece it together or find what was happening. And that's when Tom White entered the scene. And if this story has a hero, I think he is one of them. Can you talk about who he was?
1: Yeah, so um, Tom White, it, 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 in many ways, is it, like Molly in that, you know, Molly was born in a wigwam um, speaking only Osage and then was in the 1880s and then was uprooted from her home uh, by the government and forced to go to a boarding school. She could no longer uh, speak Osage, she had to catch the white man's tongue. And within a few decades, because of the oil money, she had married a white settler from Texas, a man named Ernest Borchardt. And in many ways, she straddles not only uh, two centuries, but two civilizations. And and Tom White is somebody who also, in many ways, straddled two centuries. He was born in a log cabin uh, on a Texas frontier. Um, He came from a tribal community of lawmen. His father was a lawman. He and his brothers have been Texas Rangers. He began practicing law at a time when justice was often meted out by the smoking barrel of a gun. And by the 1920s, he is working uh, for uh, the FBI. Uh, it was then known as the Bureau of Investigation. And it's we know it today as the Federal Bureau of Investigation FBI. And he was a field agent. And in 1925, he was uh, summoned uh, to Washington, DC. Uh, by that time, he's wearing a suit. Um, he is, trying to learn more modern techniques of investigation, like uh, fingerprints uh, and uh, handwriting analysis, which became a big part of the case. And when he gets to Washington, he meets with J. Edgar Hoover, who was the new director at the time, he's only 29 years old. And the Bureau had been investigating these murders uh, for two years and the results have been completely disastrous up until then. Uh, The Bureau suffered from many of the same problems that plagued law enforcement then across the country, poor training, widespread corruption. Uh, and the Bureau had failed to make any arrests. Um, They had in fact gotten an outlaw, a guy named Blackie Thompson out of jail, whom they hoped to use as an informant. And instead he uh, slipped away, robbed the bank and killed the police officer. So Hoover was terrified of a scandal and he turns to White to take over the case. And so White um, ends up leading, um, uh, uh, taking over the investigation and putting together this undercover team um, because of the dangers. And the undercover team uh, included some old frontier lawmen. Most interestingly enough, it also included an American Indian. And there are no statistics from the Bureau back then, but I think it's fair to say he was the only American Indian in Hoover's Bureau at the time. And they went in undercover. And as you said, White um, has a quiet goodness about him. Um, and and the story really is about it's 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 a, it's a story about as close to good and evil as I've ever written about. It. And white like like Molly, um, they both have a real uh, goodness about them.
0: One of the focuses of the community, first someone who they thought was very good. And turned out to not be very good was this man named William Hale. And he was the uncle of Ernest who married who married Molly. And he was a very successful businessman, very wealthy, and friend of the Osage, as he would say. And many Osage mm-hmm. believed that. Yes,
1: he had arrived in Osage County at the turn of the century. Uh, at that time, he was just a dirt poor cowboy, showed up on a horse with dirty, ragged clothes, carrying little more than a Bible. And he began to accumulate land and became this cattle baron in the area by the twenties. He was, um, the most powerful figure in the region. He was known as the King of the Osage Hills. He controlled patronage. He called politics. He was the deputy sheriff, but as you said, he had this face, he was this kind of boosterist. He was this kind of, he presented himself as a friend of the Osage as this kind of avatar, also of progress. Um, he campaigned for, um, God fearing souls, And because when Molly, um, you know, could not get white authorities to investigate these cases, she turned to uh, Ernest Hale, I mean, to William Hale to help her. And um, they um, campaign. they uh, hired private detectives. They put out rewards. um, And little did she know that Hale uh, was deceiving her. And in fact, it was he who had hatched one of the main plots using his uh, nephew, Ernest, to marry into Molly's family um, and then directing him uh, and his other henchmen to slowly murder off members of Molly's family so that they could inherit and control the head rights. And that's one of the things that made these crimes so deeply sinister is that they involve an intimate level of betrayal. They involve people pretending to love you while systematically plotting to murder you over years and sometimes even your children.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is David Gran, author of The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, The Lost City of Z, and most recently, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI. So this is, I mean, it's just horrifying to look at how widespread this was and when you see husbands turning against wives and wives turning against husbands for money. What did you think when you were writing this and researching this about human nature?
1: Yeah, you know, I am, um, you know, funny, (coughs) journalists and writers are often portrayed as uh, being cynical. uh, I can't speak for everyone, but I, I speak in my own case. It's actually kind of the opposite that I always begin, I don't want to say with illusions, but trying to think of the right term. I can't think of the term, but it's not cynicism that drives you because you want to try to pursue and expose sins. You're kind of driven by some kind of moral imperative to to hopefully do good in your work and to expose problems, but then you begin to peel back the human nature and you you really are you can be really shocked. And in the in the case of of this, um I think for me that was most shocking Because when you begin a story, you don't know what you'll find. And and going back to that description of that photograph, missing picture, I had initially conceived of the story much as the FBI had at the time, which is as a kind of traditional crime narrative in which there was a singular evil figure, this man named William Hale, the so-called king of the Osage, who with a few henchmen had perpetrated these crimes. Then society comes in and they remove that evil and society is supposed to return to normal. And instead, over time, uh, as I spoke to Morrow Sage, as they gave me evidence and testimony, and as I spent years in the archives finding new evidence, um, I began to realize uh, and that that conception of, of the case was really mistaken. And this was not a story about who did it, but much more a story about who didn't do it, and that it was about a culture killing, and that while he was one of the most brutal and psychopathic killers you know, a man who committed, uh, you know, close to 20 murders, there were others who were committing a single murder in their family and then covering it up uh, in order to inherit a head right. And so this really was about a culture of killing. There were morticians who covered up the, the bullet wounds, there were doctors who administered the poisons, there were reporters who did not disclose the truth, there were politicians and lawmen who were guardians or profiting from these crimes. And there were many others who were complicit in their silence. And I found that um, it's much more disturbing to think that that evil that that prejudice and that greed can lurk in the hearts of so many seemingly ordinary people. It's much easier to conceive of it as there is one singular bad figure. Um, And so that to me was the most shocking discovery.
0: With your narrative, you had three parts and you have a more traditional overarching narrator that isn't named. You're just telling the story in the first two parts. And then in the third part, you bring yourself into the story. Can you talk about your decision to change that point of view, why you felt it was necessary and um, what you were trying to accomplish with this third section?
1: Sure. So when I originally um, began the project, I, I I did not plan on doing that. I planned on telling it much more as a traditional narrative. Um, but I confronted s- several challenges, structural challenges. Um, one of the biggest challenges I had was there were so many individuals involved and the crime spanned so many years. There were so many different crimes. There were so many different investigators um, there wasn't really one figure who you could build the whole story through either um, because they didn't weren't involved in everything or they only had limited knowledge and um, sometimes one um, comes up with uh, um, thoughts about how to tell a story certain, with serendipity and 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 through reading I, I always believe reading and when I'm working on a project I'll often um, read um, and and often the reading doesn't have much to do with um, what I'm researching. <laughs> uh, it's just to read. And I, I happened to read some uh, Absalom Absalom by Faulkner uh, for the first time. I had seen it mentioned in the New York Times Magazine, touting it as this great American novel. And I said, well, I never read that, so I'll try It's a very hard novel to read. I had to read it twice to kind of fully make sense of it all. But it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a spellbinding novel. But it's told with three narrators and in this kind of elliptical oral history. And I was reading the book and it's, I said, wait a second, three narrators? And so I chose as the first two narrators, um, you know, and when I say narrators, it's largely told from their point of view based on the, um, but all true, obviously I'm writing nonfiction, based on the historical records. And so the first uh, perspective was told from Molly Burkhart, um, this Osage woman, who's really a, a pretty remarkable, brave woman, who's at the center of this conspiracy. I thought it was really be important to begin the book with her perspective, in part because in, in, in the many of the records, um, her point of view had been completely ignored. It was as if she had no agency. And I thought it was really important to get the Osage perspective. And so um, that was the the first chronicle. And then the second chronicle was Tom White, um, who is this investigator, and he can lead you then through the investigation. Um, But each of them only have limited knowledge. Um, They only know certain parts of the story. They're living in the midst of a conspiracy. And often when we tell history, we have godlike knowledge because we know how the story ended. But people living through history don't. And and neither did Tom and neither did Molly. And they're struggling to make sense of the world. And so then the third chronicle, um, as I began to realize that this crime, that the, that the, the narrative of the crimes is really mistaken, that it really wasn't just about William Hale, there were all these other crimes, I thought the only way to take you into the present was to enter my reporting, and so I'm not so much a, an individual where anybody—I don't tell anything about my life. I'm only just a, a kind of a stand in almost to, to 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 be able to tell this information, um, and what the reporting has showed, and that allowed me to bring the story up to the present and to show what had happened to the Osage Day, what had happened to their money. Um, I tracked down many of the uh, descendants of both the killers and the victims, many of whom live in the same neighborhoods today, Uh, other fates intertwined. Um, But most importantly, it allowed me to show the kind of elusiveness of history. And only over time do we begin to get a larger portrait. And I tried to show based on this new reporting, um, based on talking to the Osage, based on archival information, that there really was this much deeper and darker conspiracy that the Bureau never exposed, and that there really was a culture of killing. And while the official death toll was about 27, uh, the real death toll was in the scores, if not hundreds.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is David Gran, author of The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, The Lost City of Z, and most recently, Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI. In this last section, you talk about meeting some of the ancestors of some of these people. Some are great-grandchildren or grandchildren some of the people that were either adults or children when that was going on in, in the twenties. So I'm wondering if meeting these people who either remember stories from their parents or grandparents, um, or tangentially remembered, you know, what it was like talking to them and what that legacy is for those people.
1: Yeah. For me, it was a really the most kind of powerful part of the research. Um, um, I interviewed um, a lovely woman named Margie Burkhardt, who's the granddaughter of Molly, And she shared with me oral histories, what she knew about her grandmother, what she'd heard. Um, She shared with me the impact that these crimes had on her father, who was growing up in that house with with Molly and Ernest, um, how it really just wrecked his life, Uh, living in that house of secrets, um, murderous secrets, knowing that his own father had planned and plotted to kill him. She told me what it was like to grow up without um, relatives because she didn't have cousins and aunts um, the way other people did and uncles because they'd been, because of the slayings. And she, at one point she took me out to the, a graveyard where many of the murdered victims are buried, including the murder victims from her own of her own ancestors. And, you know, talking to her gave me a real sense about how this is really living history. We are talking about less than a century ago and how this history still reverberates to this day.
0: Can you read a passage that influenced you by another author?
1: This is one that I commonly go to. Um, and if I'm stuck or just need to hear a voice in my head or just need a little inspiration, I'll often just pick it up. I also, It's also my most prized book I have because it's a a first edition signed copy of The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And um, I'll just read a passage uh, from the beginning. Uh, The things they carried were largely determined by necessity. Among the necessities or near necessities were P38 can openers, pocket knives, heat tabs, wristwatches, dog tags, mosquito repellent, chewing gum, candy, cigarettes, salt tablets, packets of Kool-Aid, lighters, matches, sewing kits, military payment certificates, sea rations, and two or three canteens of water. Together, these items weighed between 15 and 20 pounds, depending upon a man's habits or rate of metabolism. Henry Dobbins, who was a big man, carried extra rations. He was especially fond of canned peaches and heavy syrup over pound cake. Dave Jensen, who practiced field hygiene, carried a toothbrush, dental floss, and several hotel-sized bars of soap he'd stolen on R&R in Sydney, Australia. Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried tranquilizers until he was shot in the head outside the village of Tonke in mid-April. By necessity, and because it was SOP, they all carried steel helmets that weighed five pounds, including the liner and camouflage cover. They carried the standard fatigue jackets and trousers. Very few carried underwear. On their feet, they carried jungle boots, 2.1 pounds, and Dave Jensen carried three parts of socks and a can of Dr. Scholl's foot powder as a precaution against trench foot until he was shot. Ted Lavender carried six or seven ounces of premium dope, which for him was a necessity. And it goes on, um, but what that is such a reminder to me is specificity in detail and what the specific details could tell you both about an individual and a story and there's nothing fancy in there Um, but each detail is almost poetic in its specificity to each character and you know down to the weights in which they carried Um, and so for me it's just a reminding of what great writing really is.
0: Can you read a passage that you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot for the first draft or just something you like?
1: So um, very my most recent uh, project is something called uh, The White Darkness, about a British explorer who became obsessed with Ernest Shackleton, uh, kind of modeled his life after his leadership techniques, and then eventually set out um, on uh, expeditions to trace Shackleton's roots, including he, deter- he was determined to walk across Antarctica alone. And um, th- that's a book which will be coming out in October, and it's the first time where I've really written about a place that I did not go to. Um, I did not go to Antarctica. And so it was a real challenge for me to get a sense of the landscape and the nature. And so what I'm about to read, I don't actually think is is necessarily my best writing in any which way, um, but it was a struggle for me and a way to try to kind of wrap my mind around this incredibly astonishing and alien setting. Um, and it, it begins um, with, um, The the two men for one of the first expeditions that Worsley was going to go on to the South Pole, trying to follow Shackleton's route, was a man named Gow and Adams. And uh, Worsley, Gow and Adams planned to begin their journey south of New Zealand on Ross Island. The island is bound by the Ross Ice Shelf, which extends over the Ross Sea and is the largest body of floating ice in the world, more than 180,000 square miles and on average more than 1,000 feet thick. Because the Ross Ice Shelf is easier to reach by sea during the summer than other parts of the continent, and because it is relatively smooth and stretches nearly 600 miles toward the heart of Antarctica, it was the starting point for expeditions to the South Pole during the golden age of Antarctic exploration. Shackleton and Scott and Amundsen all began their expeditions on the shelf. Like these explorers, Worsley and his team would head south across the ice shelf, a journey of nearly 400 nautical miles until they reached the Transantarctic Mountains, which divide the continent and extend to the Weddell Sea. To get to the polar plateau, an elevated almost featureless part of the continental ice shelf where the South Pole is situated, the party would have to cross these mountains, which rise nearly 5,000 feet. On the Nimrod expedition, Shackleton discovered one of the few passable routes, a glacier covered valley 25 miles wide and 125 miles long, that runs between the mountains like a frozen causeway. There burst upon our vision, an open road to the south, Shackleton wrote. Still, the glacier is treacherous. Its elevation is 8,000 feet and its surface is riddled with crevasses. The last of Shackleton's Manchurian ponies had disappeared into one. When Scott crossed the glacier during his latter expedition, one of his men suffered a fatal hen- head injury after falling into a crevasse. Only a dozen people the same number that I've walked on the moon had trekked the length of the glacier. Worsley referred to it as his nemesis. And again, that's, you know, fairly straightforward and, you know, not very poetic, but, um, I was trying and it took a while to just learn and begin to just almost master the facts of this region so that I could begin to inhabit that world.
0: Where do you write?
1: Uh, I write uh, at home uh, most of the time, I uh, in a little office, stacked with many books uh, on the floor and documents, and I usually uh, get up early in the morning, have my coffee, and uh, begin to work uh, the whole day.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Uh, I would say um, the the two things I do to get away from writing is I like to take walks uh, just to clear my mind. Um, And my back gets stiff when I'm sitting, Um, but also most importantly my kids uh, and my wife, you know For me family is really important and you know writing for me is very hard And it is for me the best kind of escape uh, to be with them and, and just to get away from it all
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My wife. How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Oh Terribly (laughs) <laughs> uh, um, you know, I, I don't think rejection ever gets easy. Um, and uh, I had a lot of it, especially early in my career. Uh, it took me a long time to earn a living uh, to get my writing uh, into magazines. Uh, you know, it was more than a decade of of struggles. Um, and so uh, I don't think whenever it's ever easy, although I will say this, it is also always a, a motivating factor. And, you know, I always think, you know, I was at an event the other day. Margaret Atwood used the word, uh, you know, coming back. And I think you just got to keep trying to come back.
0: And what is your favorite word? Curious. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was David Gran, author of The Lost City of Z, The Devil, and Sherlock Holmes and most recently, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft to dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.